Chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This beloved parable has been called the parable of the lost sheep. It's sometimes called, at least in my mind more preferably, the parable of the seeking shepherd. The message is really for everyone. It's, it's for the believer. But it's also for the unbeliever. You see, the parable is also repeated in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, it's in a different context. On this occasion, Jesus speaking, is speaking to his disciples. And in Luke's gospel... The parable is directed to an audience that is largely lost. In Luke's gospel, the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man receives sinners and eats with them in Luke chapter 15 verse 2. Jesus goes on and then says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost? Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep which was lost. In Luke's gospel, eight times in Luke chapter 15, there is a reiteration and an emphasis of the lost condition of humanity. And twice in Luke chapter 15 verse 4. Again in verse 6, 8, 9, 17, 24, 32. And the reason why I bring this up is because again the reoccurring message is that human beings are in trouble. In Luke's gospel the sheep is lost. In Matthew's gospel the sheep has gone astray. In Matthew's gospel, the king makes this great statement of purpose that we've already talked about. Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This, by the way, is the reason why Jesus left heaven. This is the reason why he came to the earth. This is the reason why Jesus left the glory of heaven and all of its privileges and emptied himself of his prerogatives to pursue you, to come after you, to find you, to forgive you. In Matthew's gospel, God the Father and Jesus the Son is pictured like a protective shepherd. And we're reminded that the whole earth collectively and each individual on the earth has gone astray. This is not new news to the Jewish person. 
All we like sheep have gone astray, it says in Isaiah 53, 6. We've each turned everyone to his own way. The prophet wrote and he said, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all in Isaiah 53, 6. According to the Bible, we were all in a wilderness of sin, doomed and destroyed in that wilderness unless we're reached, unless we're saved by Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that everyone needs to be saved from their sin. It never ceases to amaze me or surprise me that whenever I speak, there's always going to be a few people who quite literally don't believe that. In their own heart, they'll say, I'm the exception. I'm the one person who's fine just the way I am. But in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and again in verse 23, in chapter 10, verse 13, in the most famous passage in all of Scripture, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. That Jesus came into the world so that people could be saved. It's repeated again in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, and in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, when you have this avalanche of information that people need help that people need hope and so Jesus likens himself to a conscientious shepherd deeply concerned over the loss of a single sheep willing to focus time and attention to pursue that one which has gone astray believers are sometimes weak Sometimes immature, sometimes stubborn, sometimes we lose passion or interest or motivation. And some of us find ourselves wandering back into a life of sin and shameful behavior. Some are stubborn and selfish. Some even rationalize their their sinful behavior by the very real hurt or the very real abuse or the very real anger or the very real hostility. But remember what a rationalization is. It's a plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. And there is as many reasons to sin as there is sin and Jesus reminds us that the one who strays, the one who gets separated, is still loved and cared about. That Jesus came for the lost in verse 11. That he cares for the lost in verse 13. That he forgives and rejoices when the sheep are recovered in verse 13. But look again. I want to invite you once again to visit verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Again. How in the world did human beings find themselves in this horrible predicament? Most of us know the story. The Bible teaches that God lost man. Now, before you get upset, I want you to think about that for just a moment. God didn't misplace human beings or forget human beings. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. 
They disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. Sin made it impossible to have fellowship with God or worship God or serve God. And see, this is part of the point that God lost man in what sense? In fellowship, in worship, in service. All of this becomes so very important because according to the Bible, man has gone astray. We are lost in a wilderness of sin. We don't seek after God. We've become, according to the Bible, altogether unprofitable. In Romans chapter 3, verse 11. In verse 10, Paul wrote, as it is written in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. They've all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And for the person who challenges Paul's statement, he says, I do good things. I look after the poor. I give to charity. I do this. I do that. I've been kind and decent and good. The point that Paul is making isn't that you've been kind and decent and good, but your kindness and decency and goodness has done nothing to alleviate the problem of worship and love and service to God. Because you see, you've got to come to him on his terms. And this is what he desires from you. Not simply that you do good for each other or that you do charitable things, but rather you understand and recognize the human condition of being lost and estranged from God. Human beings exist so that they can know him and love him and serve him. We are lost to God because we are unable to do what we were created to do. To love him. And worship him. And serve him. You see the Bible says that your sin separates you from him. That you might have warm feelings of affection. You might even show up at church and desperately want to worship him. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. That you've got to have a right relationship with him through Christ. And I want to draw your attention to those words. That which was lost. We don't normally get into a Greek lesson. But let's just pause for a moment and consider what the text says. It's, it's what's called the Greek neuter participle. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but what it means is that the person lost isn't just simply man, masculine, or woman, feminine. It includes everyone. The text says that, neuter, which was lost and sought after. The reason why just this even tiny little bit of information becomes important is because he seeks both men and women and boys and girls. No one is outside the scope of his love. No one is outside the scope of his seeking. He loves and seeks after all. And there are people who absolutely and positively don't believe that even for a moment. They think, how could God be looking for me? How could he want me or desire me? 
And we, we discover, look what, what, what it says. Jesus continues to seek the lost in verse 12. Look what it says. What do you think? I love it in the Bible when Jesus asks a question. When Jesus asks them the question, what do you think? By the way, is it because he doesn't know what they're thinking? He knows what they're thinking. He even knows what you're thinking. When Jesus asks the question, what do you think? It isn't so that he can get information that he never knew before. It's so that you can articulate what's going on inside of your own head and in your own heart. And then Jesus uses this parable. Now remember, we've spoken about parables in the past. And remember what I've said to you. A parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. It's something that's happening here that reveals something, something that's happening in heaven. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? In that single sentence, the Lord Jesus is going to make three powerful points. Number one, the sheep have gone astray. Number two, the sheep are sought by the shepherd. Number three, the sheep are sought in the mountains. Now remember what I've said. He asked the question, what do you think? Think about what? I'm going to invite you to think about the context of Matthew chapter 18. Remember, Jesus has already spoken about the subject of greatness in verses 1 through 6. He's used the illustration of a little child in verse 6. Remember, he says, bring the little child to me. Whoever's going to be great, they're going to be like this little child. Jesus reminds us God cares about his children. And that when we honor the little child, we honor the Savior. We were also warned about the severe penalties for the ill treatment or the abuse of children in verse 6. Remember, it would be better if a millstone were hung around the offender's neck. They're cast into the sea. We learn that the angels are assigned to protect them in verse 10. And that in that context, Jesus says, it's the will of the Father to bring the little children safely into his sheepfold, verses 11 through 14. So what's happened? When Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. How is that even possible? Why would anyone go astray? What's in the wilderness? What's in those mountains? What is it that has caused the sheep to wander? I almost, for this message, thought I would bring a rock. And I would hold the rock up and I would go, tell me, ladies and gentlemen, what does this rock, what is it thinking about? See, you laugh. The reason why you're laughing is because you know that rocks don't think. They don't think about anything. As a matter of fact, the Greek philosophers would say that the definition of nothing is what a rock thinks about. What do you suppose sheep think about? How can we enter into the mind of a sheep? What goes on in the mind of the sheep who decides to leave the safety and security of the shepherd and the flock. What goes on in the mind of a sheep? Do they smell fresh water or lush green fields? Do they simply leave? Is it as simple as not paying attention? 
Is it as simple as getting distracted just for a moment? Is it the refusal to heed the repeated wanderings to stay with the group? These last three weeks, uh, Mary and I, along with Woodrow Kroll, have been leading a group of about 120 people in Italy and Greece and Turkey and Israel. And the repeated warnings to the group was, stay with the group. Stay with the group. Well, what would happen if I get separated from the group? You could get lost. And you're going to be on your own. Is it a refusal to acknowledge the dangers and disappointments that take place absent the shepherd? Again, we could come up with all kinds of reasons why people go astray. But before we do, let's talk about that for just a moment. What does that mean? What does it mean to go astray? Let me be very clear and very simple. It means that the person has left the fellowship. Not of the congregation of, of you and I. It means the person has left fellowship with God. It means that the person may have forsaken a right relationship or fellowship with God. And it could happen for any number of reasons. Because of false teaching or wandering down a dangerous road or, or falling into sin. The bottom line is you know that you've left the group and you know that you've left friendship and fellowship with the shepherd when you don't sense his presence. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what you sense is his absence. You come to a place in your life where things are dark and distant and empty. And like a sheep, you may have said, where has the shepherd gone? But I'm going to suggest to you that in each and every case, it isn't because that the shepherd has left you. William Jenkins wrote, quote, To forsake Christ for the world is to leave a treasure for a trifle, eternity for a moment, reality for a, a shadow. There was a pop Christian singer in the 1980s. His name was Charlie Peacock. He used to to sing a song, he said, I almost gave it all away, traded truth for a lie, diamonds for clay. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the backslider is a man who, because of his relationship to God, can never really enjoy anything else. And so we wander, or we embrace sin. And selfishness. And it's always empty. It's always less than what we expect. My friend Greg Laurie used to call these people mugwumps. He called them mugwumps because he said, when you're a Christian, you can't be on the fence. Your mug is on one side of the fence and your wump is on the other. He called them a mugwump. For a Christian to be in the world and yet not of the world, it's never going to be a satisfying position. Once you know Jesus and you love Jesus and you've tasted friendship and fellowship with, the G with Jesus, the emptiness and the darkness becomes 
always less than satisfying. Are you miserable? That's good. What are you saying, preacher? Preachers aren't supposed to say, are you miserable? And and if I am, say, that's good. It is good. The reason why it's good is anything less than a right relationship with God should make you miserable. If you've wandered into sin, into shameful behavior, into wickedness and disobedience, and you go, this is not who I am. This is not who I want to be. How are you? I'm miserable. Good. Because anything less than a full and final pardon, anything less than forgiveness, anything less than joy is less than what God wants for you. There's a reason why Jesus said that he's come to give you life and give it more abundantly. F.W. Norwood wrote, quote, Life's greatest tragedy is to lose God and to not miss him. There's nothing worse than that. It's to find yourself in that dark place, in that empty place, in that distant and disconnected place, and then repeat the lie to yourself, I'm fine. In the parable, the shepherd is counting heads. On my trip with Mary, that's all that we did. Okay, let's count. One, two, three. Who's missing? Who's not here? The shepherd has a large flock to tend, but makes it his business to know each and every one. When one was missing, the shepherd knew that the sheep was gone. And here's what you should know. He missed the sheep and he went after it. And I think it's interesting that the shepherd doesn't send other sheep to go go out and find the lost sheep. Hey, you 50, go out and look for the sheep. He doesn't do that. You notice also, he doesn't even enlist the help of another shepherd. He does it himself. And I think that that's amazing. The shepherd goes himself. It's not me who's tasked with the responsibility to find you and bring you back. Jesus takes it personally. He will find you and he will follow you. The Lord knows when you've taken the detour. The Lord knows when you've fallen into error or sin. I don't know if you've taken a detour. I don't know if you've fallen into sin. I don't know where you are and what you've done other than God knows. Jesus knows. The shepherd depends on the harshness and the danger and the trials and the suffering in the wilderness to sufficiently motivate the sheep to go back to the shepherd. And the shepherd depends on the sheep's memory of the safety and security and the guidance and the care of the shepherd. The shepherd relies heavily on two things. His voice... And the sheep's willingness to hear. That's the way that the shepherd works. He calls out to the sheep. 
Again, hearing and voice are dependent upon proximity. The further the distance between the sheep and the shepherd, the less likelihood that there's going to be a reconciliation. Does the sheep have the strength to answer the the call or to respond? Has the wilderness or predators taken an awful toll? Is the sheep injured or dying or unable to respond? There's all kinds of reasons why things can go wrong. Have you taken a detour away from God, away from Christ? Are you lost in the mountains? Because we do know that saints wander, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. Do you know the story of that song? It was written in the 1700s. By a young man who was only 27 years old. He became a sort of instant superstar. As churches all over England began to sing this song. He became kind of an instant celebrity. But as things would happen. He found himself in a place of rebellion and disobedience. And he backslid. He walked away from God and he walked away from Christ and he lived a life of shameful immorality. And one day he was in a buggy, in a carriage, with two ladies and the woman across from him began to sing, Lord, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave The one I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the one I love. And she looked across the carriage and said, Have you ever heard more beautiful words in your life? And the man who wrote the song said, I'm the miserable wretch who wrote those words. And she said, What you wrote so long ago remains true. God loves you. Jesus loves you. He will restore you. We have a Savior. He's ready to catch us. And look at the beginning of verse 13. And if he should find it. The reason why this becomes such an important passage is Jesus is considering the lost. And if he should find it, we're left with the impression That the shepherd may or may not find the lost sheep. That might come as a shock and a surprise to you. And if he should find it. You know, when I was reading this passage, I was thinking of a a very famous line by comedian Rodney Dangerfield. You guys, most of you may know him. Rodney Dangerfield was that guy who said, you know, I don't get any respect. I never get any respect. He, he, he talked about getting separated from his parents as a small child on a crowded beach. And, and he panicked as a little boy. He's panicking. And he goes up to a police officer and he says, hey, could you help me find my parents? And the, the police officer looked at him and goes, I don't know, kid. There's a lot of places he could hide. <laughs> and sometimes I think people feel exactly the same way. Hey, could you, could you please help me find God? And people look at you and they say, I don't know. There's a lot of places he could hide. But let me ask you a question. Do you think God's hiding from you? The answer is no. Let me ask you a more difficult question. 
Do you think it's possible that sometimes people want to hide from God? I think that that's true. By the way, can you effectively? Is there somewhere you can go? Is there some place you can travel? Is there some distant place where you can go and you never ever have to worry about God ever finding you? Churches all across America have made a conscientious effort to adopt creative ways to reach out to the lost. Some have formed what they've called seeker-sensitive churches, which have drawn a great deal of criticism from some quarters. By the way, is it wrong to find creative ways to reach the young or the old or people who are single or people who are divorced or people who have lived a miserable life of rebellion and shameful living? Is there someone so far gone that we shouldn't find creative ways to communicate with them that no matter how difficult your life and circumstances and rebellion and sin has been, that there is a God who's trying to reach out to you? Should we abandon sound theology and doctrine, rich sermons for Christian TED Talks and shallow teaching? I don't think that that's the answer. Paul will become all things to all men that he might reach some, but Paul will never compromise the gospel. He will never abandon essential Christianity. He will never seek shallow solutions to the problem of sin because the truth is when you've wandered from God and you've gone in a different direction, it still requires Here's the same solution. You have to repent of your sin and you have to return to him. How far has the sheep wandered? Can the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd crying on the mountaintops? Is the lost sheep willing to respond to the shepherd's voice? What happens when the sheep wanders further and further away and you know, you know you are in danger when you go, I'm not going to go to church. Why? I don't like what the pastor says. I'm not going to attend the small groups. Why? Because they constantly challenge me and hold me accountable. I'm not going to read my Bible. Why? Because every time I open it, it says things to me that I don't necessarily want to hear. So you shut your Bible, and you shut your ears, and you shut your heart. Who are the sheep who are not found? I'm going to suggest to you that this is the person who willingly, repeatedly, permanently refuses to trust the Lord, to hear from Jesus, to recognize the sinful condition. This person rejects the seeking shepherd and remains lost. But this is the Bible's testimony. God doesn't want that to happen. He speaks and he continually cries on the mountaintop. 
And in part, I think that the Lord wants faithful servants to be a part of that rescue team. And some of you might think, well, Gina, you just contradicted yourself. Earlier, you said that it's the shepherd himself. He goes himself. He's not willing to entrust this task to anybody else. And I think that that's true. Jesus is the shepherd. He seeks and he saves the lost, but we can be a part of a team that provides opportunity to grow and disciple and fellowship. But my voice will only be as effective as a voice that God will use in order to speak his message. Support, encouragement, and prayer all demonstrate our Savior's constant care. It was Andrew Murray who said, there is no one so far lost that Jesus cannot find him and save him. And so Jesus corrects and then rejoices when the, the, the lost are found. Look what Jesus says, assuredly, that means this is the truth. Assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Pause for a moment. Think about what you've just read. God's love is personal. God's love is patient. God's love is seeking. Most of you know that sheep don't always enjoy favorable reputation. Thank God Jesus doesn't cast us aside because of our weakness, our failure, our infirmity, or our shortcomings. I want you to think about that. He doesn't cast you aside because of failure, infirmity, blemish, imperfection. A husband doesn't put his wife away for some failing. A mother doesn't forsake or abandon her child because it's weak or feeble or ignorant. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't cast away the poor sinner who's committed his or her life to him because of imperfection, because of a blemish, even because of disobedience or rebellion or sin. You see, it's the glory of Jesus to pass over faults and heal backsliding and impart grace and, and, and heal and provide pardon. Jesus makes it clear that there's forgiveness and rejoicing over the recovered sheep. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment, especially those of you who are in groups. Does this extreme joy come from the fact that the sheep was somehow more valuable, more loved than the other sheep? That can't be the answer. The answer can't be Jesus loves the rebellious and the disobedient more, disobedient more than he loves the compliant, the submissive, the faithful. That's, that can't be the answer. The sheep that are safe Fill the shepherd's heart with joy and peace. So how are we to think about the shepherd's reaction? How are we to think about what Jesus is saying about the shepherd's reaction? I want you to think about this for just a moment. Remember the lost sheep. Ran the risk. Of being lost forever. If you've ever lost something. And it's gone. It's gone. And then you find it. The thing that makes the joy so enormous is because 
it ran the risk of being lost forever. And if the sheep were gone, the sheep could make no contribution either to the flock or to the shepherd. And so there's this great joy that is experienced when there's a deliverance from great harm, great danger. There's another reason. Think of all the time and the effort that the shepherd has invested in the sheep. So much of the shepherd's life, so much of his thoughts, so much of his energy, so much of his sacrifice, and so much of his suffering has been invested to make sure you're where you're supposed to be. The shepherd has made the decision that his energy and effort is worth the life of the sheep. That's the reason. It isn't because you're better. It isn't even because you're worse. It's because that which was lost to him is now found to him. And that which was lost to us is now available to us. In Luke's gospel, you'll remember that Jesus has the shepherd come home to his friends and family and say, rejoice with me. I found the sheep that was lost. And then he adds, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just people who need no repentance. And now we understand what that passage means. They were lost. But now they've come back to us. Again, the same reasons apply. They could have been lost forever. And the shepherd has made such a sacrifice. This is in stark contrast to the worthless shepherds talked about in the Old Testament. In, in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 7 it says, Woe to the worthless shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean, dried up. His right eye shall be utterly darkened. In other words, there's repeated messages in the Old Testament for those people who refuse to adopt the heart of God concerning people who were in trouble. And so Jesus comprehends God's will for the Lord in verse 14. This is why he says, even so it's not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Don't miss the transition. In verse 10, go all the way back to verse 10 in your Bible. Remember where Jesus says, I want to warn you, take heed that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels see my father who is in heaven. And here, Jesus reminds the disciples, that same father is your father. Read it for yourself. Even so, it is not the will of your father in heaven. The Savior finds us. Why? So that you can become a part of his family. Why? So that he is your father. And as members of the same family, we're given permission to provide care and compassion and concern for one another. By the way, who are these little ones that Jesus makes reference to? 
I'm going to suggest to you that these are the genuine believers. These are the blood-bought, born-again Christians. And the word perish often carries the meaning of ruin or destruction or death. It can sometimes mean non-permanent ruin or loss or temporary loss. I'm going to suggest to you here, perish almost certainly is a reference to spiritual devastation than utter spiritual destruction. Why? Because of the warning. It's the warning of not to hurt or abuse the little ones. The passage can't mean universal salvation or the idea that all will eventually be saved because Jesus has told us repeatedly that there are permanent consequences for people who hear the message of hope, who hear the gospel, who in, where the invitation is given, where you can have a right relationship with God and you ignore that or reject that. When we as Christians fall into sin, it ruins our usefulness to him and to each other. Let me ask you a question. Have you stumbled? Have you fallen? Do you find yourself in a place where you don't want to be? Then you should be filled with joy over the fact that the Father is overjoyed to have you back. Jesus rejoices. The angels in heaven rejoice. Again, remember the context. We don't offend the children in verse 6. We don't despise the children in verse 10. We allow them to come to Christ in verse 14. It should cause every single parent to forever dismiss the foolish lie that you should let your children grow up and decide for themselves. You should love them and serve them and give them the gospel and do it in the morning and do it in the evening and do it at night. Do it at home. Bring them to church. But more importantly, bring them to Christ. Alexander Solzhenitsyn told a booing crowd of Ivy League students, quote, if I were called upon to identify the principal trait of the entire 20th century, I would be unable to find anything more precise than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. And they booed him. But God hasn't forgotten men. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your children... Your family, your friends, your neighbors, they are finding reasons to forget about God. And one of your tasks is to remind them, no, there's a God. He loves you. He's in heaven. He cares about you. Jesus is a good shepherd. Jesus is going to come for you. He'll cry out to you. You can hear his voice echoing over the mountains, through the wilderness, pleading in the desert, come home, confess your sin, repent, return, remember. Dan Moen used to sing a song. I'm not even going to attempt to sing it, but I am going to give you the words. He sang, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us turning our own separate way, we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory, but your glory is what we desire to see. And in your presence is where we long to be, taking our sickness, taking our pain. Jesus, the sacrifice lamb, has been slain. He was despised. He was rejected by men. He took our sin. Draw us near to you, Father. Through Jesus, your Son, let us worship before you, cleansed by your blood. I'm not here to embarrass you or accuse you of anything. But I am here to remind you that if you find yourself in a dark place, in an empty place, in a wandering place. So it's okay to come home. Jesus is waiting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, the person who finds themselves in that empty place, in that dark place, that they would come home. And again, Lord, it's not my desire even a little bit to embarrass or humiliate anyone. But I do want to give them an opportunity to publicly confess that they desire you, that they want you, that the emptiness and the darkness and the loneliness is not what they want. They want friendship and fellowship with you. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to come up and publicly declare your love and your loyalty to Jesus and your willingness to follow him and to be found by him and to be accountable to him. Let's stand.